Well, we know that millions upon millions of people, uh, even with the concerns of COVID, uh, will gather today across the globe to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, As believers, we live every day of our lives in light of the resurrection of the Lord. Nevertheless, on this particular morning, much of the world uh, stops and recognizes this holiday, Uh, even if they question the historical credibility of the resurrection, they still seem to attach a sentimental value to it. But the proof uh, is hard to ignore. Even the most skeptical Bible scholars admit that the best available Historical evidence confirms that followers of Jesus, like Mary and James and Peter and other disciples, were absolutely convinced that the crucified man, Jesus of Nazareth, appeared to them alive, raised from the dead. Those scholars themselves just won't accept that Jesus actually and literally did rise on the third day. If they did, it would be perhaps too costly. It may force them to deal with other important issues such as the authority of Scripture or the deity of Christ or God's judgment of sinners in the world who reject His Son for who He really is. Well, this morning I want us to look at someone who not only believed in a resurrection but believed that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. Uh, who was at, at least at first, worse than a skeptic? He was a scoffer, but in the end was convinced that Jesus would rise from the dead, even as he was dying before his very eyes. And that person is the penitent thief, uh, that dying man who, in the final hours of his life, was plucked from the grasp of the destroyer. And the jaws of hell. Proving at the very least that as long as a person can repent, he can obtain forgiveness. But there's so much more that this story teaches us. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 23rd chapter of Luke. Luke chapter 23. And as you turn there, uh, let me remind us of the purpose of Luke's gospel account. Of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is likely the only Gentile or non-Jew, and Luke, more than any of the others, highlights the universal scope of the gospel invitation. For example, he portrays Jesus as the Son of Man, rejected by his own, rejected by the nation of Israel, and then offered to the world, to the nations. And he repeatedly relates accounts of Gentiles and other outcasts who found grace in the eyes of Christ. So this is a a running theme throughout the book. Jesus' compassion for people of all kinds, but especially for those often regarded as the undesirables in Israel. Samaritans, women, children, tax collectors, and sinners. From the outset of Jesus' public ministry in chapter 4 to the Lord's final words on the cross, Luke stresses this theme of Christ's ministry to those who are disregarded and dismissed by society, 
Uh, those, you might say, who were the social or the, on the cultural periphery. And in his presentation of Christ again and again, Luke shows how Jesus, the great physician, ministers to those most keenly aware of their need for salvation. In fact, one statement made by Jesus himself that summarizes his earthly mission is recorded in chapter 9, verse 10. Right after Jesus transformed the life of that chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, our Lord declared, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is the central theme of Luke's narrative. That is the main message of this particular gospel account. So when we come to Luke 23, we're not surprised to find Jesus continuing to save sinners and those who would acknowledge their need for spiritual healing and righteousness. Because that is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to save. Jesus didn't come, as some suppose, to be a good teacher. He didn't come to simply be an example of kindness and compassion. Jesus did not come to be some kind of therapist or to help meet people's felt needs. He didn't come to make a moral impact on the world, though he did. He came primarily to save sinners, to save them from God, to save them from God's deserved wrath, to save them from an eternity of hell and condemnation. And that is what we see in the life of Christ, even as he hangs on a cruel Roman cross. So I encourage you to just sort of picture in your mind this morning this this scene. The scene is Mount Calvary or or Golgotha. The time is of the Jewish Passover. Uh, Jesus has been led away following an unjust trial. Uh, A trial that was littered with false accusations. A trial that lacked any credible and any consistent evidence against Christ. A trial where he was taken before Pilate, who actually declares that Jesus, five different times, he declares Jesus' innocence. But in the end, he bows to political pressure, and for his own personal preservation, his own personal advantage and gain, has Jesus crucified. But in the midst of this despair, in the midst of this Darkness, such darkness, occurs one of the most precious encounters with Christ in the entire New Testament. It is Luke's record of the so called thief on the cross. And actually, there are two thieves, one on either side of Jesus, as all three men hang there condemned to die. These are the words that come to us by the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke the physician. Just five verses, but those in which the Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, deserve to be printed in letters of gold. Let me read beginning in verse 39. This is the English Standard Version. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. 
But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, many of you know that Jewish thinking locates the entirety of man's intellect, his will, his affections in the heart. That is to say, from a biblical perspective, the heart is the control center of man. Not the physical heart, uh, not the organ that pumps blood through your body, but the spiritual heart. That is the term the Bible most frequently uses to refer to the center of who you are, the real you, or your inner life. And even today, we think this way, many of us do, we pray often for our young people that God would give them, as Psalm 90 indicates, give them a heart of wisdom. Give them a heart of wisdom. Or, or we might pray that they would guard their hearts, according to Proverbs chapter 4, knowing that the heart is the wellspring of life. Interestingly, Jesus taught that men have thoughts in their heart in Luke chapter 1, verse 51. They ponder things in their hearts, Luke 2. They reason in their hearts, Luke 3.15. They love with their hearts, Luke 10.27. They speak to themselves in their hearts, Luke 12. They plan in their hearts, they believe in their hearts, or they doubt in their hearts, Luke 24. In other words, we can learn a great deal about the entirety of a person based upon that person's heart. And we can learn a great deal about a person's heart by examining their words and their actions. Jesus said in another place over in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 15, 18, that what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. So what I, wa- what I want to do this morning is I want to consider this passage in Luke 23 in terms of three men with three different hearts. Three men with three hearts. There are three men dying here, according to Dr. Luke, and we'll take them in the order in which they appear in the text. Three men with three hearts. And what we notice is that the first man has a rebellious heart. The first man has a rebellious heart. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So what do we know of these criminals or as says in the King James Version, the malefactors? The term itself simply refers to those who do wrong, who do evil. Uh, Interestingly, Matthew describes them as robbers, and Matthew uses a different Greek term, and then Luke employs that second term when he records the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, in verse 30, and describes those who attacked the man that was coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the text says that that man fell among robbers 
who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So these two men crucified next to Jesus were likely those who robbed by force and who robbed by violence. You add to that the fact that in verse 19 of Luke 23, Luke indicates that Barabbas was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. It's possible that these two thieves may have been involved in such activities. The truth is we don't know a lot of details about their crimes, but whatever they were, one thing is for sure, they were worthy of crucifixion. Now, how do we know that this first man had a rebellious heart or a hard heart? And we take note of what comes out of his mouth. That's how we, we, we know. We, Jesus said what comes from the mouth proceeds from the heart. And so initially we see his relentless reviling, his relentless reviling. The passage says that he railed at Jesus. The King James says that he railed on Jesus The NIV says he hurled insults at him. Literally, this man is blaspheming Christ. In this case, by referring to Jesus, uh, referring, uh, refusing to take Jesus's power seriously. And based on the tense of the verb, once he started, he kept going. He continued, persistently mocking Jesus, persistently taunting Jesus. Jesus. And then you'll notice next his arrogant remark, his arrogant remark, the end of verse 39. He says this, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This criminal asked Jesus, are you not the Messiah? Which under different circumstances may sound like a pretty decent question, but the context makes it clear that he does not seriously believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And if this man was, as some have suggested, a, a person of zealot outlook, he could not have accepted as the Messiah one who made no moves toward political revolution. In fact, he would only have reserved scorn for someone like that. So there's no sincerity in this man's question. There is nothing but a display of sarcastic disrespect. And this first thief has a heart that is hardened to the things of Christ. Even in death, he blasphemes. His heart is stubborn. His heart is proud, presumptuous. He joins the blasphemy of the crowd and the rulers who sneered at Jesus and said, back up in verse 35, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. In essence, he mocks Jesus' ability to deliver others, to perform miraculous works for others, but not for himself. The unbelief and the callousness are astounding. And that is the heart of this first man, a rebellious heart. 
But the second heart is one of a man whose, whose heart is not closed and hardened, but open and humbled. That is to say, the second man has what we might call a repentant heart. A repentant heart. This is the heart of the criminal on the other side of Jesus. Now, repentance is a term that, that conveys the idea of, of turning, of turning around. And so what we're saying is that this man had a change of heart for the good. Again, Matthew and Mark, in their accounts, both report that this second criminal had also railed against Jesus, at least initially. Over in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 41, Matthew writes, So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. It's actually a quote from Psalm 28 or 22, verse 8. It's as if to say, if God really delights in him, he'll deliver him. So they say he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And then verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Not just one, but both of them. They were both guilty of doing this, of insulting Jesus and speaking out against him. Both of them were drug out to this horrific sight. Both of them hung up on their respective crosses. Both of them caught up in the, the passion and the intensity of the moment. They join in the mockery even though they are hanging there enduring the same physical suffering that Jesus is enduring. In other words, the atmosphere of disdain, the atmosphere of, of hatred is so infectious that they somehow marshal the strength to mock Jesus with everyone else. But when we consider Luke's account, what we gather is that one of these criminals suddenly grew quiet. Something happened to this particular man. This person who had likely committed violent robbery, spent his life taking advantage of others, a de degenerate, a debauched, wicked man. At some point in the course of this morning, his heart was transformed, his heart was changed. So this, this criminal started out that day with the same stubborn and hard heart of his partner. But in the span of a couple of hours, while hanging on his own cross, his heart was softened. Perhaps he had overheard Jesus' interaction with Pilate and his mention of a kingdom not of this world. Maybe he was reflecting on that. Or maybe he had looked over at Jesus when he heard his prayer for his tor tormentors back in verse 34. But something happened. Something changed. One thing is clear. His heart is not the same as it was.
Now, what are the indicators of this repentance or this heart change? Well, first, there's his interrupting rebuke. His interrupting rebuke. That is to say, he essentially breaks in as the first criminal is going on with his blasphemies. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, he rebuked the first man, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. You think about this change of course. This man is hanging there in tremendous pain, dealing with the unbearable suffering that came with this kind of execution, dealing with the physiological shock, no doubt struggling with the mental fog and the confusion associated with this torturous process. But at some point, this man's mind and understanding become crystal clear. He has this perception of reality and truth for the first time in his life. And he turns to his companion that he had just been participating with in the joking and in the mocking and in the sarcasm and the hatred. And he rebukes him for doing the thing that he had just been doing himself. Now what happened? The power of God. The power of God broke in and arrested this man's heart. A divine miracle took place. A new birth. Spiritual regeneration. And it must have shocked his companion because just an hour or so before, this second thief was an active participant in what was going on. But now, all of a sudden, he is repulsed by their behavior. And he begins to confront the other guy. And when we listen to what he says, we learn about some of the things that actually changed in his heart and in his life. For example, he becomes very aware of God and the fear of the Lord. This first evidence that God is doing a work of salvation. A heightened awareness that God is all of a sudden not some cozy friend or a pal. He, he is a threat to you. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Certainly the beginning of salvation wisdom. This man isn't worried about physical death. He is concerned about being saved from divine judgment. He isn't preoccupied with what is happening to him on earth. He is thinking about what will happen to him when he stands before God's righteous throne. He comes to realize what Jesus taught back in Luke chapter 12 when Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
The first thief, on the other hand, continued to hurl insults at Jesus and had no fear of God. He was blinded to the reality that Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb. And just as Israel, as a nation, was blinded. But this second thief came to his senses. He has this moment of clarity, and he can't imagine what he has done. So he has this sense of of the awe of God, the majesty of God. He fears the Lord, and then he has this sense of his own sinfulness. Another change. These are just things that we can see sort of unfolding in this man's heart, this transformation. He's ashamed of the way that he's lived and he's treated Christ. And he, he accepts it. He acknowledges it. He owns it. He doesn't, he doesn't look for, for someone to blame. He doesn't blame the hypocrites. He doesn't point the finger at, at, at some, something in the environment. He doesn't blame his genes. He doesn't blame his parents. He doesn't blame the political climate or the economic situation that he found himself in. He makes no excuses. No justifications. So he has a fear of God. He sees his sin and knows what he deserves according to God's standard. Here is a man who confesses his sin. He knows he is guilty. He doesn't look for someone to blame for his own sinful actions. And we also learn from this rebuke that he believes Jesus Christ to be innocent. He says, this man has done nothing wrong. He has done nothing amiss, nothing off course. He has done nothing evil. And from the lips of a condemned criminal comes a truth taught throughout the Scriptures the sinlessness of Christ. That Jesus never sinned, not once, which qualifies him to be the spotless, sacrificial lamb of God. And so this man's rebuke of his companion is an indicator of his repentance. But also consider his humble request. Verse 42, And he said... Jesus, which by the way, this criminal is the only person in this entire account going all the way back to the triumphal entry to address Jesus simply by his name. The intimacy and the sincerity and the setting are gripping. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me which is the idea of remembering for good. Jesus, Savior, be graciously mindful of me when you come into your kingdom. Think about what he is implying by making such a request. He's implying that Jesus' death would not prevent the kingdom. Now, what kingdom are we talking about? Well, this is Messiah's kingdom. This is the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament but had not yet come. 
You remember when Gabriel visited Mary in Luke chapter 1, he made this announcement in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The fact is that the message that Gabriel gave and that Mary understood was that Jesus would reign over the nation of Israel. A promise based on on the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants in the Old Testament, that God would give the nation of Israel a new heart and forgive her sin, and he would deliver the nation from her enemies. And the request made by this thief implied that he believed that that kingdom would come one day and that that Messiah's death would not prevent it from coming. But not only that, his request also implied that he believed that Jesus' death would actually secure his position as king. And that entrance into that kingdom would all hinge on a person's relationship with Christ. All of that is wrapped up in this rebuke and this request. This was the penitent thief's confession. God is holy. I am sinful, I deserve hell, Jesus is sinless, and even if Jesus dies, he will rise again and take his rightful position as king of kings and lord of lords. This is true repentance and a faith that saves. And it represents what every person must acknowledge in order to be saved. Again, we don't know what this thief understood of Christ before the events of this Passion Week. If he ever saw Christ heal anyone, if he ever heard Jesus preach, although Jesus was fairly well known, surely this thief had to have heard something about Jesus. But regardless, whatever that level of exposure was, again, He is given clarity about the person and the work of Christ. Enough to know that no one could bring a legitimate charge against this man. And the amazing thing is that he also knows that no one survives crucifixion. He knows that he will die soon. He even expects that Jesus will die soon, but he believes that Jesus will rise again. He has a pretty decent Christology, if you think about it. He understands that Jesus is the Messiah. He understands that Jesus is going to establish his kingdom in the future. He understands that Jesus is righteous. He's the Holy One. He's the righteous one. He understands that if he dies, he will be raised again. He understands that Jesus is forgiving and merciful. And he understands that Jesus is the Savior. Perhaps he even knows something of Daniel's prophecies in Daniel chapter 7. 
that the kingdom of Christ will involve a shared rule, one where Messiah and the saints rule and reign together. Three times in that chapter in Daniel, it is stated that the kingdom of God will be given to the saints. So I don't necessarily believe that this thief is thinking about what will happen immediately after he dies. He's thinking about the future in the last day when Christ has raised his saints and sets up his kingdom and he's hoping to be a part of that. And to be a part in that would be evidence of God's mercy. He's asking for the grace and the mercy to get into that kingdom. His fear of God, his faith in Christ, his hope of forgiveness, his confidence in the resurrection of Jesus, his confidence in the fulfillment of all those promises that would come through the Messiah. This man certainly was not a materialist who believed that this is all that there is in life. He wasn't a believer in annihilation or in the possibility of a man's not being immortal. He believed in the supernatural. He believed in the afterlife. He expected to be in another world and to be in existence when our dying Lord would come into his kingdom. The turnaround is staggering, really. And so is the singular faith that this penitent thief exerts toward the Lord Jesus. Even as he witnessed him dying the death of a felon, even as all of Jesus' disciples had already forsaken him and fled, even as he was hanging himself in extreme torture, even with no one cheering him on to confess Christ in that moment, with no sermon, no church service, no good books to read, with no appeal from a praying friend, no concern from a mom or a dad. But the sight of Jesus alone won him. And he believed. He didn't see the risen Christ. Like the women who came to the tomb that Sunday morning, as recorded in Matthew 28, he wasn't an eyewitness of the resurrection like the disciples on the road to Emmaus or the 500 brethren in Galilee. This thief saw Jesus not in the glory of resurrection, but in the agony of crucifixion. And yet he believed. Alfred Plummer in his commentary summarizes this in a in a nice way, he says, quote, Some saw Jesus raise the dead and did not believe. The robber sees him being put to death and yet believes. What a contrast. What a contrast between these two criminals. The first thief made sarcastic demands, continued to blaspheme and thought that he deserved better. But the second thief turned from his sin and made a humble request for what he knew he didn't deserve. He wasn't like the first criminal who saw Jesus' death as a contradiction of his messiahship. 
this man saw the cross of Jesus as a confirmation of his messiahship. So the first man has a rebellious heart, stubborn heart, hard heart. The second man has a repentant heart. The third man, who is more than a man, the third man has a redeeming heart. Verse 43. And he, Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. That is to say, I am going there shortly. You will be there with me there in paradise. And this is the culmination, really, of the passage. Salvation, redemption, the redeeming heart of Christ. Revealed, first of all, through his determination to save. You remember the words Jesus had already uttered while suffering the agonies of crucifixion and knowing what was coming. Verse 34, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is the heart of our good shepherd. This is the heart of our Messiah. This is the heart of our King. Again, this was his mission, to seek and to save the lost. And even in the midst of unimaginable anguish and suffering and pain, he was still going after lost sheep. His elect, his chosen people. And he had one more sheep to rescue and redeem before he breathed his last. Finally, Christ's redeeming heart is revealed through his words of assurance. Notice, truly, which Jesus says because he knows that this would be hard to believe. Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This term paradise is a, it's, it's actually a Persian uh, word for garden, uh, but it's a synonym in the New Testament for heaven. We see that in Revelation chapter 2 and in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. It's, it's the, the dwelling place of God, the abode of God. And Jesus says, yes, one day you will be with me in the kingdom, but today you will be with me in heaven. And the Apostle Paul would state later in 2 Corinthians 5 that to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There is no purgatory. There is no transitional period. There is no holding tank. You will be immediately translated into the presence of God and His Christ. What a profound story. And all of this transpires between 9 in the morning and noon. Verse 44, you'll notice, tells us that at the sixth hour, or at 12 o'clock, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3, 3 in the afternoon, that the veil of the temple was torn in two. In verse 46, and Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. We don't know at what point these men died. 
We do know, according to John chapter 19, that Jesus died before they did that day. But for the man who was saved, he was never more at peace than in those final moments of his life. Some of you are familiar with that song by the 18th century English poet William Cowper, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. That penitent thief spent his whole life rebelling against God. But in an instant, everything changed. He had no good deeds to to offer. He had nothing to do or to perform. He had no penalty or price to pay. It was sheer mercy. Nothing to lean on in his dying moments, but the heart of Christ, the work of Christ, and the promise of Christ. Well, there they are for our instruction, for our, almost as an appeal, or in some cases, a warning. Three hearts of three men. One man had a rebellious heart and he died in sin. He died in his sin. One man had a repentant heart and he died to sin. And one man, the God-man, had a redeeming heart and died for sin. J.C. Ryle said this, The Lord Jesus never gave so complete a proof of his power and will to save as he did upon this occasion. In the day when he seemed most weak, he showed that he was a strong deliverer. In the hour when his body was racked with pain, he showed that he could feel tenderly for others. At the time when he himself was dying, he conferred on a sinner eternal life. Now have I not a right to say, Christ is able to save to the uttermost all them that come unto God by him? Behold the proof of it. If ever sinner was too far gone to be saved, it was this thief. And yet he was plucked as a brand from the fire. Have I not a right to say Christ will receive any poor sinner who comes to him with the prayer of faith and cast out none? Behold the proof of it. If ever there was one that seemed too bad to be received, this was the man. And yet the door of mercy was wide open even for him. Have I not a right to say by grace ye may be saved through faith, not of works, Fear not, only believe. Behold the proof of it. This thief was never baptized. He belonged to no visible church. He never received the Lord's Supper. He never did any work for Christ. He never gave money to Christ's cause, but he had faith and so he was saved. Have I not a right to say the youngest faith will save a man's soul if it only be true? Behold the proof of it. This man's faith was only one day old, but it led him to Christ and preserved him from hell. Why then should any man or woman despair with such a passage as this in the Bible? Jesus is a physician 
who can cure hopeless cases. He can quicken dead souls and call the things which be not as though they were. Never should any man or woman despair. Jesus is still the same now that he was then. The keys of death and hell are in his hand. And when he opens, none can shut. This is our confession, church. Jesus is risen. He can't save anybody if he's not alive. No resurrection, no eternal life for anyone. But he did rise, and he did conquer death. And because he lives, we live. We don't trace our history back to someone who's dead. We live in the presence of him who is eternally alive. Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? He is the Savior. He came to seek and to save the lost. But if you reject him, he will be your judge. The invitation is this. Paul's very familiar words in Romans 10. He writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. In that same passage in Romans 10, Paul quotes from the prophet Joel in verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Please stand for prayer. If you're here today and you want to know more about the good news of Christ and how to have your sins forgiven, we encourage you to stop by. We have our visitor reception. You can grab one of our elders, our pastors, one of our church members after the service. Please give us the opportunity to open the scriptures and answer any questions you have. And if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, Consider this question from the pen of Charles Spurgeon. He coins a word in this question. He says, why is it that our Lord does not imparadise all of us at once? It is because there is something for us to do on earth. And this the natural follow-up question, are you doing it? Brother or sister, do justify your Lord in keeping you waiting here. How can you justify him but by serving him to the utmost of your power? May God help you and may he help me to do just that. Father, we thank you this morning for the clarity with which the scripture speaks to the glory, the power the importance of the death and the resurrection of Christ. We thank you that our Savior lives, and because he lives, all who are in him live as well. And because his life is eternal, so is the life that belongs to all who belong to him. Thank you for raising Christ, And for one day raising all of us, giving us resurrection bodies, as Paul says, like his glorious body, 
fit for an eternity of joy and service to the one who gave us life. We praise you on this Resurrection Sunday for our own resurrection. We have been raised already from spiritual death. We will soon be raised from temporal death to eternal life in your presence. And we long for that reality. But until then, we want to be faithful. We want to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor, our toil is not in vain in the Lord. May we who have life, because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, so live and so labor that our lives would be an expression of thanksgiving and an offering of praise to you for the gift we've received, even our eternal life in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.